It's said that in the time of the Buddha, a large group of monks set out to find a good place to spend the monsoon season together and retreat for a three-month retreat and practice. So they wandered away from the cities and the towns of the Ganges Plain and north towards the great Himalayas. And eventually they came across a secluded valley that seemed perfect. There was a fresh mountain spring that formed a crystal clear pool where they could draw clean water. And it was surrounded by an old majestic forest with cool shade under the tall trees and the floor covered with soft mulch from the fallen leaves and needles. And there was a small but prosperous village nearby. And the residents were delighted to have these monks come into residence in their area and to support them with food and medicine and any requisites they might need for their time in retreat so that they could hear the Buddha's teachings and develop their own understanding and their own spiritual practice. So the monks set up their camp in this spot and settled down to meditate. But they found that actually things didn't go as smoothly as they had hoped. They just couldn't seem to get comfortable in this place, despite its beauty. Because every time there was a creak or a snap or a boom in the forest, they were afraid that some wild beast was creeping up on them. Or if they heard a whisper or a wail in the night, they were sure that unfriendly spirits must be lurking nearby. And in fact, they were so assaulted by continuous fears and worries that none of the monks could really relax and begin to cultivate even a little bit of mindfulness or concentration. So eventually the monks got together, they called the council and they talked over the situation and they decided to go to the Buddha for guidance, which was a bit of a trip, but they thought that his advice would be useful. And the Buddha, of course, realized immediately the state that they were in, that they were fearful and worried and ill at ease and feeling insecure and unsettled. So he gave them an important teaching, a teaching on the cultivation of universal friendliness to help them to restore a sense of peace and harmony, both within themselves and their inner environment and with the environment around them, whoever or whatever might be there. He said, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from animosity and ill will. The Buddha told the monks to keep this teaching in mind at all times, and it would be of great benefit to them. So the monks returned to their secluded valley, reciting this teaching, chanting it uh, very beautifully in the Pali and gradually taking in its message of universal goodwill and friendliness. And little by little, their fears and worries did melt away. Their hearts became soft and warm and open. Their mindfulness and concentration naturally developed. The seven factors of awakening grew stronger and more balanced in them. And it's said that by the time the rains of the monsoon had ended three months later, each and every one of them had become an arahant, a fully enlightened being. So this is the traditional uh, backstory from the commentaries on how this teaching and practice of unconditional friendliness or metta came to be. 
And it's interesting that it was originally conceived as a protective practice, as a guard against fear, a guard against anxiety. The Dalai Lama has said that the more you are motivated by love, the more fearless and free your action will be. It has this effect. And we may really feel this quality of metta here on retreat. When we bring in the loving kindness practice in the afternoons or at other times during the day that you may have been working with it, that it has this quality of refuge or shelter, protection from the storms of our minds. And many of you have commented on this groups, how you find a safe haven in the metta practice. The benefits of metta are really immense and varied. In our everyday lives, it's said the metta uh, smooths all social interactions. It's, it's said, the traditional analogy is that it's a lubricant between people so that they blend together more uh, harmoniously, more smoothly. It allows us to connect more fully and deeply with others, even those that are difficult for us. And to see more clearly and compassionately what would actually be helpful in difficult situations. Through the formal meditation, we can relieve stress and worry, fear and anxiety. We can cultivate calm, tranquility, concentration, joy. And very strong metta can even be a springboard, a platform for reaching the ultimate goal of the practice, enlightenment and awakening, liberation. There's a traditional reflection on the 11 benefits of metta. It's one of those teachings that is sometimes uh, memorized and recited during difficult times in practice to arouse energy and joy. So when the mind is imbued with loving kindness, one sleeps easily, wakes easily, and has pleasant dreams. One is loved by humans, animals, and spirits. One is protected by spirits and is impervious to external harm. One has a shining face and a serene mind. And one dies unconfused and is reborn in a happy destination. Sounds lovely. (laughs) So some of the benefits of metta that we might reflect on. The word metta is derived from uh, a root in Pali meaning friend. Uh, if you're linguistically inclined, it has this, the same root as uh, the words we find in modern Indo-European languages like amigo or ami, amici, amicable. Um, all of those words have that same me uh, root that you find in, in metta, from mita. So really the most literal translation of metta is friendliness. But the Buddha took that somewhat commonplace term, as he did in many cases in his teachings, and gave it a more profound significance. So not just friendliness, not just everyday friendliness, but unconditional friendliness. It's the beautiful state of mind that looks on all living beings with equal goodwill, equal kindness, equal caring, from those that are dearest to us to those that are least dear, from those that are nearest to us to those that are most removed, from those that are most important in our lives to those that don't ever even touch our lives directly, just as it says in the sutta. And as I mentioned, I think before, it's important to remember that metta in its essence is a mental state. It's a mood or an emotion, a feeling. It's an experience that happens in the present moment, just like all other mental states, all other emotions or moods. So it's not a judgment about a specific being, a specific person, that, oh, I like you specifically in particular. Um, So the point of the formal practice is not to develop goodwill towards those very particular, very specific beings that we choose to be the objects of the meditation. Metta is also not uh, the holding of a philosophy, as in love thy neighbor as thyself or something like that. It's not an idea or an ideal that we hold intellectually, that we may think through and decide to accept and then try to act out. Although those things may come out of an understanding of metta and may be inspired by our understanding of metta. Until we've actually had the experience of loving our neighbor as (laughs) ourselves, 
it can only just be a good idea. It can only just be a theory. But it's also important to remember that although unconditional goodwill may seem uh, kind of lofty, lofty, kind of pie in the sky, uh, something maybe that's beyond our reach, it's actually perfectly ordinary. It's a perfectly normal human emotion. And it is accessible to all of us if we can learn to recognize it and if we value it and we cultivate it. I find it helpful to compare metta to the case of unconditional ill will, which is also a perfectly ordinary, normal human emotion that is accessible to all of us if we cultivate it. (laughs) So we've all had the experience of those times when we're just in a bad mood. You know, we wake up on the wrong side of the bed, or we have some interaction with somebody that gives rise to some ill will or animosity. It just puts us in a mood of irritation and annoyance. And then whatever unlucky person or being that crosses our path at that time uh, gets to be the recipient of that bad mood (laughs) in one way or another. Even though they may have had nothing whatsoever to do with the arising of the mood, if that's the place that we're at in the heart and mind when we come into contact with that being, that's how we'll relate to them. We've all experienced this. And metta actually operates exactly the same way. This is why it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter so much who we choose to be our metta subjects in the formal meditation. And it's why it's best to start with the easiest beings, start in the easiest place, and follow the path of least resistance. Because we're just trying to foster that mood of metta in the mind. We're trying to get the mind into a metta uh, perspective, a metta feeling that friendly feeling, that attitude of goodwill. And then once we're in that place of of some degree of free-flowing friendliness and goodwill, then in the same way, whoever comes within our sphere of awareness, within our sphere of attention, will receive that quality from us, that quality of our heart and mind. This is a teaching that another one, one of many, that I received from my Burmese teacher, Sayada Upandita, a little later on in my uh, relationship with him after the finger and the nose incident. Um, After I had done some retreats with him and had gone to Burma to practice at his center there. And um, as it turns out, I think Sayada Upandita could never remember my English name. (laughs) I'm probably not alone in that. It was just foreign to him and it never really stuck. Um, And he never actually asked me much about my personal life. He really didn't know much about me in a conventional sense. Um, when I first came to stay at his center in Burma, we had just a brief discussion. You know, he asked me, where do you live? Um, he asked me if I was married. Um, when he saw my surname, interestingly, he asked me if I was Jewish, <laughs> which I found out later is considered to be very good karma <laughs> in this tradition, just because of the way things have developed. Um, but beyond that, we didn't have a whole lot more um, kind of chit-chat, you know, that wasn't the basis of our relationship. And for a long time, I had the feeling that he didn't really know who I was and didn't particularly care who I was in that conventional sense. You know, when we get to know somebody just in the course of ordinary life, it involves a lot of personal sharing, right? Even just what we do in interview groups here, the way we have our interviews in the West, there's a lot more of that kind of personal disclosure that goes on as a way of getting familiar with each other, developing a relationship. But in Asia, that just doesn't happen. And yet, every time that I spoke with him, I had this really powerful, palpable sense of his kindness and his compassion and his way of interacting with me in the quality of of full attention that he gave me during the course of just those brief interactions that we would have and in the care with which he oversaw my progress and my difficulties. And one day, for some reason, which has never been clear to me. I had had some exchange with him and he kind of walked off and I was just standing, kind of ruminating on the the exchange. And it just hit me out of the blue. It's just because I'm here. (laughs) It's just because I'm here that he cares. Uh, His kindness, his compassion is not based on any kind of personal connection. It's not based on any kind of personal affection. It doesn't mean that he likes me. (laughs) 
or thinks that I'm a good yogi or sees anything particularly special in me or even remembers who I am. (laughs) It's just because I'm here in his field of awareness. I'm this living being who's shown up in his world seeking his help and just simply because I'm here, he cares. It's truly unconditional friendliness and goodwill, something that I had never really felt from anyone in my life. And when that that sank in, I took that in, in that moment of this kind of impressing itself on my understanding, it was revolutionary. It completely changed how I understood the human heart. So then I got curious to investigate this metta thing and to check it out. Truth be told, I had never been particularly enthusiastic about the metta practice before. (laughs) I had been introduced to it in retreats like this here in the West, the same way uh, that we do here, the afternoon meditation, you come, you do the metta, the guided metta. Um, But I kind of went through the motions, you know, I sat in the hall, I followed the instructions as best I could, and then I didn't think about it much uh, outside. Uh, the practice always stuck me as very struck me as very um, contrived, you know, very formal, very kind of uh, machinist, machinistic, you know, the, the, all the techniqueiness of it, and also kind of syrupy, sweet, and just sentimental. You know, it wasn't really my style at the time. That wasn't what I was into. That wasn't what I came here for. But when I finally started to look with interest, I did find that that quality of unconditional friendliness was there in me too. Just in, I just got little glimpses of it here and there. Obviously not nearly to the same strength and power as Sayada Upandita manifested. But at some point I realized that this is also in my, in my repertoire. This is also on my menu, on the menu of my heart, on the palette of my heart. It's something that's there and could arise. It was possible for it to arise. And once we realize that, once we see that, that that potential is there, for unconditional friendliness, it's really hard not to want to cultivate it. (laughs) Because really, we do all long for true love. We do. (laughs) We all want real love. This is the longing of the heart. So it's not that we need to manufacture some exalted, unfamiliar mind state or quality of heart. We experience many moments of metta already. They happen really all the time. But usually we don't notice them because we're not familiar with them. We don't recognize them. So we don't have a chance to encourage them and to nourish them and to to fuel them, to feed the fire of metta. So the practice of metta is about gaining that familiarity with just the feeling of it and recognizing its wonderful benefits, seeing how it does affect our system and then doing as much as we can to encourage it more and more. We may assume that we know what love is when actually there's some confusion. There's so many near enemies, which we've spoken about a little bit in the meditation. Qualities of heart and mind that that mimic metta or fall into some uh, superficial understanding we may have of what love is. Qualities of sentimentality or sensuality or longing. Many forms of attachment that are easily confused with metta. So the metta practice is this long process of elimination, recognizing everything that is not metta, learning to recognize it, until eventually we arrive at a place that is. Rumi says that your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all of the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. And this is very much how the practice goes. So this beautiful quality of unconditional friendliness has three friends that come with it. And we mentioned these already. So there's karuna, or compassion. There's mudita, or appreciative joy. And there's upekka, or equanimity, which is also one of the enlightenment factors. And together these four are called the brahma-viharas, which is this term that can be translated as the heavenly abodes. Another one of these wonderful translations. But again, it kind of fits because it's said that when any one of these is strong in us, it's as if we were already living in a heavenly realm. 
There's a story from the Pali Canon about a young Brahmin from the highest priestly caste uh, of the Buddha's time, and still today in the Hindu tradition, named Subha, who came to visit the Buddha, and he put all sorts of philosophical questions to the Buddha. You know, he's kind of a young, kind of brainy guy, academic type. And one of the things that he asked the Buddha was this. He said, Master Gotama, I have heard that the recluse Gotama teaches the path to the company of Brahma. It would be good if Master Gotama would teach me the path to the company of Brahma. Brahma here being the highest of the gods in the the Vedic or the Hindu cosmology. So Subha here is essentially asking the Buddha how to get to heaven. How do I get to the company of, of Brahma, to the heavenly world? And the Buddha, in his typically pragmatic, down-to-earth way, told Subha, okay, here's how to get to heaven. Cultivate a mind of boundless loving kindness. Cultivate a mind of boundless compassion. Cultivate a mind of boundless appreciative joy. Cultivate a mind of boundless equanimity. When these qualities of heart are present, we are in heaven. (laughs) We are living in heaven, right? And it's not really that each of these states of the mind or the heart is uh, a separate experience. Each one is intertwined with the others. Each one is uh, suffused with the the flavor and the scent of the others. So it's more like they're different facets of the same truth. The truth of a heart that is awake and responsive. The truth of the wise heart, which is sometimes compared to this jewel. We sometimes see this iconography in Buddhist art, the the jewel of the Dharma, the jewel of the awakened heart. So different facets will show themselves from different angles in the light, depending on conditions and circumstances. So the foundation for all four of the Brahma-viharas is metta. Everything starts from that, from that feeling of unconditional goodwill and friendliness wishing for well-being for ourselves and for all others equally, without discrimination. That's the basis for the other three. Then when we encounter suffering from that place of metta, then it naturally turns to compassion, morphs to compassion. That facet of the the wise heart turns to catch the light in the face of suffering, with a sense of deep connection with the suffering, with the pain and also with the spontaneous wish to alleviate that suffering. Compassion is very empowering. So it's not a state of mind that accepts, okay, suffering is happening, I can't do anything about it, just let it be, right? (laughs) Let it be what it is. Um, It's quite the reverse. When compassion is active in the heart, it gives us tremendous motivation and sense of urgency and also the energy to work for change. But it doesn't shrink from the suffering. The quality of compassion is that it doesn't turn away from the suffering, it doesn't fall into grief. And it also doesn't lash out at the suffering or the conditions causing the suffering with anger. Compassion is that quality that is able to look at suffering full on, look it straight in the face without flinching, but instead with caring and connection. On the other hand, when we encounter happiness or joy, the good in the world from a place of metta, then naturally it, it turns and morphs into mudita, into appreciation, appreciative joy, gratitude. That facet of the wise heart turns to catch the light at those times. Again, with a sense of deep connection with the happiness, a sense of gratitude and appreciation for what is genuinely good, for what is genuinely wholesome and skillful. And the spontaneous wish, again, to really support those good conditions, to support that happiness and to help it to continue and to grow. And then on the the third hand, (laughs) when we consider the mix of of both joy and sorrow that we all experience in our lives from the perspective of metta, then we naturally come to rest in a place of equanimity. It's that facet that catches the light, which again is a sense of deep connection, but one that recognizes and accepts things as they are in the moment without struggling. So equanimity is not at all a state of mind that is cold or indifferent or detached. It's actually incredibly soft and warm 
This can be hard to get, can take some time to see. When I first started to get an inkling of the quality of equanimity, I was reminded of an experience from my childhood. When I was young, I had a friend from Germany and her family had brought a feather bed from Europe with them, (laughs) which they kept downstairs in the guest room, I guess for when their German relatives visited. But um, we would go down there and we would, I don't know if you've ever uh, experienced a feather bed, but you can fluff it up just like a feather pillow, but it's the size of a bed. (laughs) So we would fluff it and fluff it and fluff it and fluff it until it was like, you know, three feet tall. (laughs) And then we would stand on the footboard and plop into the feather bed. which was just wonderful. It was this experience of just being enveloped in softness and warmth. And equanimity has something of that feel to it. It was very reminiscent of that memory from my childhood. So if we think of, you know, big fluffed up feather bed, you can throw anything into it. You know, you can throw the encyclopedia into it, or you can throw a basketball into it, or you can throw yourself into it. And it doesn't resist. It doesn't push back. It just accepts. And the equanimous mind is like this. You can throw anything at it. The most pleasant experience, the most painful experience, the most boring experience, and it doesn't resist. It doesn't struggle. It doesn't push back. This is why the Buddha praised equanimity as the highest happiness, the happiness of unperturbable peace. And just like with metta, these three other brahma-viharas, these three other states of mind, Um, are also all ordinary human emotions that are accessible to all of us, that we actually experience in many moments, just without noticing it. So again, these are qualities to become familiar with and to pay attention to so that we can nourish them with our mindfulness and our awareness. It's said that these four beautiful states of mind, taken as a group, together encompass all possible wholesome emotions that we can possibly feel in our interpersonal interactions. So anything wholesome that can arise in our dealings with other beings falls under the heading of one of these four. And this can be a really interesting exploration to take out into the world with us at those times when we're feeling really connected, really kind and loving or joyful or balanced in the midst of some relationship or some interaction, can we turn and turn the mind and look back at itself for a moment or two and see if we can catch one of these states of mind in action? Maybe we can catch a glimpse of metta or catch a glimpse of joy, appreciative joy, or catch a glimpse of compassion just for a moment. Or at those times when we're feeling really disconnected, disconnected when there's aversion, or grasping, we're more off balance in a relationship or an interaction. Can we turn and look back at the mind for a few moments at those times as well and see that instead maybe the hindrances are there, one of the hindrances, or many of the hindrances, (laughs) which collectively encompass all of the unwholesome feelings, emotions that we can have in the course of our our relationships and our interactions. This way of practicing in daily life has become a really important touchstone for me, especially since becoming a mother. I find that if I can turn and get just a glimpse of the quality of my heart and mind, uh, a feeling for that sense of connection, caring, or openness that comes with the Brahma Viharas, um, then I know I'm more or less on track. And I'm not talking about going into some deep meditative state and exploring the mind and the body in a really penetrating and subtle way, the way that we're doing here. I'm talking about just turning and getting a quick snapshot, kind of on a high level, very simply. What is the quality of the heart right now? Can I sense that there's that tone, that feeling of openness, of warmth, of fluidity that comes with the Brahma Viharas? And vice versa, if it's clear in some situation, looking in this way, that the Brahma Viharas are not active, that instead the heart is constricted, that it's, that it's tight, that there's that sense of being closed off and disconnected, then I know that I really need to proceed with caution. I may not take the time or have the luxury to pinpoint exactly, oh, here's aversion happening, and what flavor of it, or here's craving happening in this particular way. This is just looking at a very high level 
and getting a felt sense, a basic felt sense. I can feel the tightness of the heart. Over time, we become familiar with this so that we don't have to look very long or very hard to see, oh, the heart is tight or oh, the heart is open. If I see that it's, that it's tight, then I know something's going on and I need to proceed with caution so that I don't do something that I regret because there's not that protection of metta that's there to fall back on. The last time that I was here teaching with Annie was a couple of years ago and I had uh, brought my family along with me that time, which I do sometimes. And we were staying in the, the staff housing uh, down by Gaston Pond. And this was a time when my daughter was just uh, beginning to learn to read. So I came back to our cottage at a break time to find my daughter very joyful and bubbly and excited um, with some big news to share with me. And she let me know that she had just read her first book all by herself, (laughs) which was an elephant and piggy book, if you're familiar with those, uh, which I actually highly recommend. There's a lot of good dharma in the elephant and piggy books. So she was very excited and she wanted to sit down and read her book to me and and demonstrate what she could do now. And at first I was a little bit skeptical um, because we had been working on on reading skills for a while and it was coming a little slowly for her. So I wasn't sure if she had really gotten it or maybe she had just memorized the book and was just reciting it by rote, you know. So we sat down on the sofa together there and uh, I asked her to read me her book. So she went along a little bit and I watched what she was doing and sure enough, she was really reading the book. (laughs) And I noticed that the first uh, reaction that I had to this was a big wave of relief, (laughs) really powerful relief because she read a little bit later than her peers. And as a parent, you start to worry, you know, what's going on? Is she okay? Is it gonna be all right? Are we looking at years of, you know, learning difficulties and interventions and, you know, all the things that can and do happen? today in the educational environment. So there's this big wave of relief that comes through. It's going to be okay. She's getting it. Phew. And this is perfectly natural, of course, as parents to to have this kind of reaction. But again, just very, in a very simple way, checking in with the heart, it was clear that that was not a particularly wholesome reaction. It was actually quite narcissistic. Something that at times, as parents, we're prone to. You know, that reaction was really all about me. And what did her achievement mean for me? Um, And what did it mean for my comfort and my satisfaction as a parent? Um, So I just kind of observed that, let it pass through. It did pass through after a little while. And we were still sitting and reading. And she's doing really good with the reading. It's, it's clear that something's really clicked. You know, there's that kind of that magical moment. Perhaps you can remember when the, the mind just gets it and uh, reading becomes accessible. So then the next thing that arose was pride. <laughs> Again, very natural as a parent, you know, but this feeling of, ah, oh, I've done such a good job. I'm such a good mom, you know. I've done a really good job. Aren't I a great parent? And when we connect with that feeling of pride, if we pay attention when that comes up, um, we find quickly that it is a very distasteful mental state. It's actually quite yucky, quite sticky, that kind of puffed up, self-congratulatory, you know, self-aggrandizing feeling. And in that situation, also very narcissistic, you know, all about me. And that one was such, so clearly off the mark and so clearly unpleasant that I actually had to laugh a little bit at it. You know, it was just so obvious that this was not a wholesome state of heart. And that one moved through pretty quickly. So then I was just sitting there uh, reading with her and the mind quieted down a little bit after those first couple of hindrances had moved through. And she snuggled up against me and she's reading to me and she's just so cute. <laughs> My daughter's extremely charming. Uh, at least, I think so. <laughs> so there's the feel of you know her warm, soft little body next to mine, and that sound of her little childlike voice reading to me, you know, with its expressiveness, and it's just so delightful. Just really the picture of domestic bliss. These are the moments that we. Uh, these are the, these moments are the reason that we sign on for parenting, right? <laughs> this is the the image that we have of why we're going to attempt this. 
And from the outside, you know, if somebody were to come in and, and take a snapshot of us, uh, this would look like love. And it felt like love in the ordinary sense. But again, checking in with the heart, what's really going on, I could see this is actually sense pleasure. This is sensual enjoyment. Enjoying the feel of her, enjoying the sound of her, enjoying the thoughts and emotions that were arising in my mind in response to this experience. And just generally feeling how gratifying all of this was to my senses. So that too, that response of the heart, also, also off mark, also not really true love. So just being mindful of that, we were still sitting, that was what was happening. And it continued on like that for quite a while. It didn't move through quite as quickly as the first couple of hindrances, just because it was so pleasant, it was so gratifying. There wasn't that uh, immediate need of feeling like uh, it needed to move through. But at a certain point, my daughter turned and she looked up at me with her little face and I looked down at her and I just really took in her expression, you know, the light in her eyes, the, the, the look of uh, delight in her face, uh, her sense of discovery and accomplishment really shone through her expression. And in that moment, my heart finally arrived <laughs> in a place of genuine connection arrived at that response of mudita in that circumstance, of appreciative joy, of just being there with her in her happiness, happy for her happiness, and not caught up in what was I getting out of it, what did it mean for me. Finally able to, to really give her my full presence, my full appreciation, rather than taking my gratification from her. And when we do finally arrive at that place of connection, it can feel like a tuning fork being struck. There's this kind of resonance, like everything clicks into place. We can feel the connection. We can feel the unification and the coming together. And again, it's not that I was in some deep state of meditation through this whole experience. It was very just commonplace, just sitting there with her, listening to her, chatting back and forth a little bit now and then. But keeping that just light thread of connection with what's the feeling of the heart, what's going on in me, in a very just simple, easy way. The Dalai Lama has also said, if I'm only happy for myself, many fewer chances for happiness. If I'm happy when good things happen to other people, billions more chances for happiness. <laughs> So in a way, this is just very practical. It only makes sense once we come to understand that this is possible, that really, we really can draw happiness from the appreciation of the good that's all around us and the good that comes to all the rest of us, not just our own. The Brahma Viharas are not just helpful though with interpersonal situations, but also with intrapersonal situations. So we can apply them as probably you've found, not just to other beings, but within ourselves, within our own experience, to any moment. And we get to explore this here on retreat. Can we greet the painful moments with compassion? Can we greet the pleasant moments with gratitude? Can we hold everything that comes with an attitude of kindness and friendliness? And also with that container of equanimity that is able to just receive it all without getting pushed off balance so much. This is a very famous poem from Rumi that was inspired by a teaching from the Buddha called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. When we approach our lives from the perspective of the Brahma Viharas, then we come to see that everyone and everything is ripe with this potential for connection and awakening. 
So these four wholesome emotions are not hallmark emotions. They're not that syrupy, uh, sappy uh, type of emotion that I had initially thought when I first encountered this practice. It's quite the opposite. They're all very light, very buoyant, uh, very joyful and refreshing. Even compassion, when it meets suffering with loving kindness and care, has this uplifting, joyful quality. It's quite surprising. It's not joy in the suffering, obviously, but this more subtle kind of joy in the sense of connection and in being in connection with the truth. So the Brahma Viharas give us energy to engage with others and with life in a healthy way without getting burned out. They sustain us so that we can offer the best that we have to ourselves and to those around us. The Brahma Viharas are also at the same time one of the deepest and most satisfying sources of happiness that's available to us just on a day-to-day basis in a very mundane, ordinary way. The Buddha said that it's through these very states of mind that we should seek worldly happiness. This is the wholesome and appropriate place to seek happiness just in the ordinary course of our lives. As he told Subha, this is the way to heaven, not through more and more sense pleasure, not through more and more sensual gratification, not even gratification of the mind, but through living a life that's deeply connected, deeply connected to others, deeply connected to ourselves. In this tradition, we don't distinguish between working for our own good and working for the good of others, because the deep truth is that ultimately they're the same. Our capacity for friendliness, compassion, gratitude, balance of mind, these qualities lead us to live our lives in a way that is most conducive to our own happiness and most conducive to us offering the best that we can to those around us. So in helping others, we help ourselves and vice versa. There's really no need to to separate out those two or to create some kind of false distinction between them. And ultimately, it's not possible anyway. They come hand in hand. If we're sincere in our practice, though, we will have this wholesome desire, what's called chanda, to walk the path to the best of our abilities. This is the desire that's said to lead to the end of suffering, a wholesome desire, a helpful desire. And it's also natural to have fears about messing up or not doing it right. We may worry that we can't do it right, that there are conditions either in our lives or in our own personalities, our own conditioning, uh, that we can't overcome. The Buddha taught that there are appropriate concerns and inappropriate concerns in relation to our spiritual life. And he gave us some guidelines about what is and isn't uh, reasonable and helpful to worry about. (laughs) It's really nice of him. So it's very common to fall into thinking things like, I'm in love, or I'm still interested in love and romance and romantic relationships and sexual relationships. And that involves a lot of desire and a lot of attachment, which is definitely not this meta thing that she's talking about. So how can I do this practice? How can that coexist? Or I'm caring for my family and I'm devoted to them. And that involves so much attachment, craving and aversion and delusion and so many responsibilities. So how can I combine that with walking this path? Or I have a career or a project or a cause that I'm passionate about and really committed to. And that involves so much craving, attachment, aversion, delusion. So how can I walk this path and still do my work in the world? Or just, I I really like to be comfortable, you know? (laughs) I don't want to be a monastic. I like to enjoy life. I have a comfortable home. I have beautiful things. I love to travel or create art or music or be with my friends or make enough money so that I can have nice things and pleasant experiences. And that involves so much desire and craving and attachment and aversion and delusion. (laughs) So how can I walk this path? So you can kind of fill in the blank of your own version of this. (laughs) We We all tend to have one. But the Buddha taught that all of these kinds of things are really misplaced fears unhelpful concerns. 
I got this great little book that's it's really just a little pamphlet on one of my trips to, to Burma, printed on newsprint and uh, translated in this, into this very quaint English that gives a whole list of things that we don't need to be concerned about in spiritual life, <laughs> including what it calls boy meets girl, <laughs> which of course could also be boy meets boy or girl meets girl or you know whatever the case may be. But so falling in love or being in love, being in relationship, wanting that in our lives is on this list of things that we don't need to worry about. It's not one of the obstacles on our spiritual path. During the time of the Buddha, there was a couple known as Nakula Pita and Nakula Mata, which means Nakula's mom and Nakula's dad, (laughs) which is sometimes the parents will understand me here how we feel about what our role in life is. And it's said that they had been together as partners during many lifetimes. So they had a really long connection to each other. And during the time of our Buddha, they they encountered the Buddha, became devoted lay disciples, followers of the Buddha. And one time as they were sitting discussing the Dharma with the Buddha, Nikula Pita, the husband, said to the Buddha, Venerable sir, I took Nikula Mata as my wife when I was young. And since then, I have never even had a thought of infidelity, let alone an actual lapse. I've always wanted to be just with her in this lifetime, and I always want to continue to be with her until our journey through samsara is complete. And hearing these words, Nikula Mata, the wife, echoed the same sentiment. She said, Venerable Sir, I came with him to to his house in my youth, and since then, I've never had a thought of anyone else. I've always wanted to be with him and always want to be with him throughout the whole of samsara. And the Buddha responded to this very sincere expression of deep affection between this old couple with a brief teaching on how to ensure that they would remain together in such a caring and supportive relationship into the future. He said, if two partners who are leading a harmonious life together wish to remain together in the future, then they should take care to be well-matched in the qualities of faith, morality, generosity, and wisdom. Just as one is inspired and enthusiastic in their faith, so should the other be. Just as one is careful and compassionate in upholding moral conduct, just so should the other be. If one of them wishes to support a worthy cause, the other should encourage them. If the other wishes to offer aid, the first should be delighted. And so too, they should strive to understand each other equally through wisdom and knowledge. This is one of the stories um, from the teachings that I find really fascinating. It's in a way so modern in its tone, isn't it? The Buddha doesn't come back at this old couple with, well, you know, you guys should really try to cut off your attachment to each other so that you can get enlightened, you know, get some insight and get free. Uh, instead, I think here he's really validating the, the beauty and the value of a committed partnership that is based on wholesome shared aspirations. So there's other things too that we don't need to worry about. <laughs> there's many other things on this little list of things not to worry about from my little Burmese book. So it also includes things like working for a living, earning money, whether it's a little money or a lot of money. We don't need to worry about it. It includes being engaged in trade and commerce, being involved with courts and litigation, so the political functioning of the community. Um, So all the various aspects of engaging with the society that we live in. It also includes things like eating, sleeping, making love. So meeting all of just the basic natural human needs that we all have. So none of these things are what we need to worry or stress about in our spiritual lives. We don't need to worry that our lives are somehow not spiritual enough because of them, or that any of these things are an obstacle on the path. And any kinds of of worries or fearful thoughts that we have around these things are actually just another form of craving or aversion. That's just more of the hindrances. Uh, As we may be seeing, Mara gets really tricky especially in our thinking around the Dharma, and thinking around our path. (laughs) There's no place that he won't sneak in. 
So these are just more things to be recognized and known for what they are. If we find that we have some hang-ups that we can't do the practice, you know, really in a deep way or in the course of our daily lives because of some circumstance or some condition, don't believe it. The Buddha actually encourages us to take delight in being able to live in the world in a skillful way. And that this is an entirely and appropriate source of happiness for us. On the other hand, the Buddha also said that there are things, there are aspects of our lives that it's very appropriate and helpful to be concerned about, even to be fearful about. Namely, the hindrances and the defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion, and all their various forms and manifestations. We should really be concerned about those things, about them running around unnoticed and unchecked in our minds. That's what we have to be afraid of. So again, it's not that we need to be concerned about them arising. It's very natural, it's very normal. They will arise. But what we should be concerned about is that they arise without us seeing them and that, the, that they then get acted out without awareness and without restraint. And this is why it's so important to bring this practice right into our lives. With greater awareness, we can see the defilements in action. We can see what they're doing. With a wholesome aspiration and with the practice of restraint, continuing this practice of sila in whatever way makes sense for us, we can do our best not to impose (laughs) the consequences of our own hindrances and defilements on those around us. So again, not that we need to try to keep the defilements from arising. Good luck with that anyway. (laughs) But just to make our best effort to catch them in the act. You know, to see Mara, to see Mara at work. Whatever skillful action that we're going to be capable of, whatever restraint that we're going to be capable of, has to start from that place of just knowing what is actually going on in our hearts and minds. Which is what we're learning to recognize here what we've been training the mind over the course of this retreat to be able to pick up on, to become sensitive to the quality of the heart, the activity of the mind. That's what opens up the window of opportunity for us then to make a different choice, to make different choices, to make better choices, to find a different way of being in the world. When we're able to see the forces that are actually driving us, then it can become the fuel for wisdom rather than just for more suffering. It can become an integral part of our path rather than an impediment. And this is the great challenge and the great potential of practice in daily life. It takes such courage, such commitment. Um, It's actually much harder than being here if we're really sincere in our efforts. And if we're willing to really face the truth of what is going on and what's motivating and driving us. It's so much easier just not to look This is what we're trained to do. This is what we've been putting so much time and effort into for most of our lives, learning ways to avoid, learning ways to distract ourselves so that we don't see. And for some of us, we may not be sure if we're really ready to bring this practice into our lives in a full way, in a dedicated way. And that's okay. We can just be where we are with it. Even just knowing that this is a possibility, that there are people in the world who do make this commitment, can completely change how we view what's possible in this life. So we don't need to force ourselves. Maybe to end, I'll just uh, say a little bit about my own path and coming to the practice. Um, I first came in contact with the Dharma uh, in a formal way when I was in college. I was in the senior year of my engineering program at university and I was getting really burned out. It was quite challenging. So I signed up for a course offered through a local Zen center that had put up a flyer, you know, on the bulletin board in the student center. And so I went to this little course, I think it was probably like eight weeks or something. And it was very interesting. It really opened my eyes to uh, what was going on in the mind and what might be possible with the mind. But I also had some reservations. I had some reservations about uh, this particular center and the teacher there and how it was being run. And I also felt just that the style of practice wasn't quite right for me. It didn't really click. So when it was over and I graduated and I moved back um, to where I grew up, back to DC, I didn't really follow up on the whole Buddhist thing. (laughs) 
I had other things to focus on, uh, like becoming a functional adult. <laughs> that was quite important at the time. And for a couple of years, um, I had what you might call a bookstore practice. So this was at the time when uh, buying expensive coffee and hanging out in bookshops was, was all the rage. <laughs> I'm kind of dating myself here. <laughs> Uh, so my practice for a couple of years was to uh, order my latte and take it and browse through the, the Buddhism section or the, the Eastern mysticism section of the bookstore. And that was, that was actually an important part of my path. You know, it kind of kept the, the seed alive. You know, the, it wasn't really sprouting yet, but I was watering it. I just kind of kept the idea of the Dharma in mind. I didn't completely forget it, even though I wasn't particularly doing much about it for a while. Then at some point my practice progressed to what I might call thinking about meditating. <laughs> so at this point I was working, I was working in the corporate world, quite a demanding job again, a lot of tra traveling, a lot of long hours, a lot of responsibility, um, again getting burned out. And so I started to think about meditation again. So I got myself a, a setup, you know, a Zabaton and a Zafu and a timer, and I set them up in a corner of my apartment so that they'd be there ready to sit on as soon as the time was right, <laughs> whenever I felt like meditating. And they just kind of sat there for another couple of years. <laughs> and, you know, eventually things, you know, my life progressed, other things happened, but at some point, um, the interest arose again, and I took another meditation class, this time in this style of practice, a Vipassana class, one of the many uh, beginner classes that are offered around the country, a series of uh, eight or ten weeks or something, offering the introductory instructions and teachings. And I really was inspired, but I still couldn't get myself on the cushion. So my practice then became, be became to sit on the sofa and look at my sitting gear in the corner, <laughs> <laughs> and contemplate, why not? You know, why am I here on the sofa and not on the Zafu? Um, and that went on for quite some time, but it was actually quite instructive. Again, this was a useful part of my path, really an indispensable part of my path with hindsight. Um, I needed that time to just kind of face my fear and my hesitation about really committing, because there was, I think, this intuition that once I really started, there would be no turning back, which is often how it is for us. So it's, it's important to nurture that seed, the seed of our aspiration, the seed of our intention, the, the kind of first tremblings of our sense of wisdom and potential in this practice, until we find that the, the time in our life and the conditions are ripe for it to sprout. As long as we nourish the aspiration, whatever that might be, then when conditions are right, then things will progress. So what's important is to find our own path and to just keep going. 99% of our work in spiritual life is to just keep going. So if we think that, okay, I've come on this retreat, it's been interesting, it's been insightful in some way, um, but there's no way I can do this out there, out in my real life, it really depends what you think this is. You know, if you think that this practice is about this very particular form that we have here, a lot of formal meditation, the sitting and the walking, just following the breath, moving very slowly, avoiding eye contact. You know, if we, if we get the idea that this is what practice is about, that this is the real work and everything else that we do is kind of second best, second rate practice, then yeah, we can't, for the most part, do that in, out in the world. A little bit here and there. You know, we can get our 30 minutes of formal meditation a day or whatever we can make sp space for. Even if we could do, take this form with us out into our ordinary lives, we wouldn't necessarily recommend it. It wouldn't be particularly skillful. But continuing to live mindfully, continuing to be aware of our motivations, be aware of our emotions, be aware of our bodies, be aware of our thoughts, on a level that is consistent with our everyday activities, on a level that makes sense and that's doable, that we can do, that all of us can find a way to do. We can all find a way to bring this practice into our everyday lives so that we can continue to grow. We can continue to move along our paths. We can continue to develop kindness. We can continue to develop wisdom. 
if we just keep remembering and reminding ourselves to do it. And our wish for you is that your time here will help you to remember when we go back out into the world. The Buddha once told how in an earlier life, one of his previous lives, he had been a rich Brahmin called Balama, uh, who had distributed an enormous amount of alms. He had been a tremendous benefactor and supported all sorts of needy people. And it had brought him great merit on his path. And he had been experiencing the benefits of all his almsgiving in that lifetime over many lifetimes that followed, eventually helping him to attain Buddhahood in a later life. But he said, better yet than all of that good work that I did would be taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And this would be perfected by observing the five precepts. And it would be still better if one could imbibe a slight fragrance, if only for a moment, of all-encompassing kindness. The best of all, however, the ultimate, would be to cultivate, even for the time of a finger snap, the understanding of impermanence. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.